0: I'm wondering if this week you found yourself doing something that, man, you wish you hadn't done that, saying something that, man, you wish you, you hadn't said that, and you found yourself doing and saying some of the stuff that for a long time you've been doing and saying and saying, man, I've got to stop doing this, and you wonder, how in the world am I going to stop? Asking God yet again for forgiveness over this nagging temptation that keeps tripping you up. Wondering, am I ever going to get to the other side of this? Maybe there's been like a little tape playing in the back of your mind. It it goes something like this. You're never going to be able to stop. Or, Or maybe even worse, it's a tape that says, and you call yourself a Christian? A follower of Christ? Who are you kidding? And maybe even this week, you're believing that message more and more. I'll never be able to stop. I'll never be able to resist temptation. And you know what? Maybe I feel like I'm a lousy Christian because I am a lousy Christian. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Some of us want to stop lying. We desperately want to stop cheating, looking at the things we're not supposed to do and look at. That are ruining our hearts and our relationships. Some of us want to so desperately to get our emotions, our anger under control, our appetites, our tongue, our money. We just say, I "Feel like we're losing the battle." A lot of us say, well, "God, why didn't why don't you why don't you like save us from?" not just the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our life, so I, I know I don't want to do this anymore, but why don't you just save me from this junk in my life? Why, why, why do I have to still deal with this today? Well, if you long to stop, if you long to fight temptation so you start to experience victory in an area that continually is pummeling your life, then James has a good word for you last week we started the series faith works it's a series that comes to us from the pen of James most likely Jesus half-brother he's writing to a group of people who are going through it he describes them as a scattered people they're not a group of people gathered in Rome or in Corinth but they're scattered scattered all over the known world why are they scattered because the the history of the church in Acts tells us they're being persecuted for being followers of Christ. And in the midst of their difficulty and trials, James is writing a letter of encouragement to help his brothers and sisters to hang in there, to hold on to faith in Christ, to persevere even when it's tough. He, he does that also helping him understand what true faith looks like especially in trials. Faith works. So he comes in this passage today and he says, you want to resist temptation? Well, then there's a promise you've got to claim. There's also a warning you need to heed. And finally, there's an important truth that you've got to remember. And this all follows on that amazing command. It's an audacious command where he says in the opening verses of his letter, consider pure joy, not if, but when. You go through trials of many kinds. What are you talking about, James? Well, see, here's why. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and satisfied, not lacking anything. And so he teaches us in the midst of trials, God is testing us. He's testing our faith. And and the result is that we'd grow in our faith and become more like Christ. And so he says the pain of a trial is so that there'd be gain of Christ's likeness in your life. And he tells us the way you go from here to here, from pain to gain, is you got to persevere. And he tells us how you got to persevere. It's by having God's wisdom, which gives us perspective that we never have apart from God. Because when we're going through a trial, here's what it feels like to our human receptors. Bad. This is bad. And then we start extrapolating. This feels bad. Therefore, it is bad. And I think it's going to be bad. Right? But wisdom comes, and it gives us God's perspective. His perspective says, well, let me tell you what I do through hard things. Remember the cross? Worst thing that's ever been done turned out to be the best thing that's ever happened to you and humanity. It gives us perspective, but it also gives us a pathway. So you're in this trial, and it's all so close, and it's coming in over you, and it's messing with your mind. It's messing with your faith. And you, you go, I, I need to navigate through this, because if I don't, this thing's going to wipe me out. And the wisdom of God gives me not just the perspective of God, but it gives me the truth of God now applied to this trial so I know how to respond and continue in faith persevering. And he says, when you persevere, here's three things that happens. You grow. You grow to be more like Christ. And you have joy. There's joy, not in the destination. Man, I know there's going to be joy. There's No, no, you actually can have joy in the trial, believing what God's doing in your heart, even when you believe it through tears that he's growing me. It's hard, but this hard thing is, is not to be separated from God's good work in my life. There's joy. And when we get to verse 12, which I encourage you to turn to, James chapter 1, verse 12, page 854, when you get to verse 12, all of a sudden, he sums up what he's talking about persevering in faith and these trials, and he now points us forward to what he's going to talk about next in Temptation, and he says, there's a third thing here, and it's blessing. And the blessing has everything to do with this promise that we need to claim. It's the promise that is given to those who persevere. And so he says, if you want to resist temptation, you've got to claim God's promise. Here it is, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So what is the promised blessing? Well, the promised blessing is, first of all, God's blessing. He says, you're blessed. What does that mean? It means you have God's approval, God's favor. He's pleased with how you are fighting out the good fight of faith under the weight of this trial. And as you persevere in obedient faith, God says, well done. I'm proud of you. You know, when we hear that by faith, you know what happens? There's happiness because blessed means happiness as well. God's approval, happiness, and the crown of life. What is this crown? It's not like the crown that we get at the end of life that says, all right, you're now you're king and queen for the day or for eternity. No, it means it's the victor's crown, not the king's crown. It's the one who was competing in the race that received that r- laurel wreath. That's the crown James is talking about. And it's not just to those who win the race. But this crown is given to those who finish the race. It's the crown that motivated the Apostle John when he wrote to his brothers and sisters who were going through it. And he said this in Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. So there's a promise, promise, blessing. There's a promise, reward, the crown of life. Now let's be clear. Who gets that crown? What does the text say? Look at verse 12. Who gets the crown? Very end of the verse. Those who who love him. Now, earlier he says, when we've stood the test, when we've passed the test of this trial, persevering in faith, you receive the crown. Who receives the crown? Those who love him. Ah, persevering in faith is a way we show our what? Our love for God. Our love for God. It's perhaps the greatest demonstration to show our love for God for a watching world that in the midst of your trial, you keep believing that he's good. When others are looking at it and going, Man, doesn't look like he's good. And they know a little bit about your God when they see you worshiping him and believing him in the midst of your crushing trial. So what is this crown of life? Well the crown of life is everlasting life. Now, you hear that word everlasting life. What do you think you get everlasting life? If you're a believer in Christ, when do you think you get everlasting life? Is it now? Is it in the future? I think for a lot of us, we think of everlasting life being something that starts the day we die, or if Christ were to come back and set up his kingdom. That's when everlasting life starts. It's forward, because it's, it's eternity. And Jesus says, no, it's not quite like that. He says, he who believes in me has eternal life. John six forty seven. Not will have. You have it. You have it today. You have eternal life. What is that eternal life? It's not just a quantity of time. It's a quality of time. That at the heart of it, as the Bible talks about it, it's a relationship with Christ. So when Jesus talks about eternal life, he says this in John 17. He says it's all about a relationship. Now this is eternal life. That they may know, this intimate knowing, you, you, the only true God, that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, eternal life begins today. Eternal life is a quality of life that begins today where you experience the beginnings of the abundant life that Christ promised. You don't have it in full, but you got the hors d'oeuvres, you've got the taste. And James says, let that motivate you. See, the problem is, when the trials come, like that storm I drove through yesterday, and I was in Janesville at about 4.30, when you didn't want to be in Janesville yesterday, and it was bad. It was raining sideways, and I could barely see the brake lights in the car in front of me. And, and that's how it is in storms. Everything gets close. You lose a sense of perception, depth perception. What do we see? What we see is now. It's hard. Not very pretty. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Seems like I could be in this thing forever. And James says, but remember, there's a promise. There's a promise reward that's out there. Get the bigger picture. Persevere for that crown of life. That life that you can experience today, not just in the future. Then he goes to this whole thing of the warning. Let me tell you a story to set up this next section, verses 13 through 15, about the warning. They say in the United States that the mountain lion is the number one predator for humans. So there's this guy, his name is Craig. Craig Childs, he's an author, he's a naturalist, and he studies mountain lions. He's in Arizona. He's checking him out in the Blue Range wilderness. And um, as he approaches this watering hole from downwind, he spots a mountain lion. and just kind of stays there, watches it take a little drink there and off back in the junipers. And then he decides to go down and kind of do a little research. And so he's measuring the footprints. And before he gets down too low on his knees, he just checks around again because he knows something about mountain lions. And what he sees back in the junipers, a couple of eyes staring at him. and the next thing you know I just can't believe it is that mountain lion comes right out in the open and right away Craig knew what to do he faced the mountain lion and took out his knife because here's what he knows about a mountain lion that a mountain lion can take a prey that's six to eight times its size and they always attack from one position and you better know where if you're in mountain lion country from the back And what they do is they pounce on the victim with those huge incisor teeth and they go right in and snap the vertebrae, the spinal cord, leaving that animal motionless and breathless and easy kill. So he writes in his book, The Animal Dialogues, about this account. I hold firm to my ground and do not even intimate that I will back off. If I run, it's certain. I'll have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground. The canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. The mountain lion begins to move to my left, and I turn, keeping my face on it, my knife at my right side. It paces to my right, trying to get me to turn around to the other side to get behind me. I turn right, staring at it. My stare is about the only defense I have. The child maintains that defense as the mountain lion continues to provoke him, to get him to run, turning left, then right, then back again. Now just ten feet away, the lion turns and walks away, defeated by a man who knew what to do in the face of a deadly Predator and knew just as much what not to do. James comes to us and he says, look, I don't know how you think about temptation, but I want you to think about temptation like that mountain lion. It's deadly stuff. Temptation, when you give into it, will destroy. So you better know how to fight it. So here he says in verse 13, if you want to resist temptation, heed the warning. Here it is, verse thirteen. When tempted, no one should say, "God is tempting me," for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, what He gives us here is an anatomy of temptation. You'll never read about this description in a medical journal, in a psychology journal, in, in a psychiatry journal there's no tests we could take that would reveal this this comes from the God who made us and knows us knows our weaknesses know how knows how we tick and he knows about how we tick when we're not ticking right and he tells us this first and foremost about temptation that you better know where it comes from it doesn't come from God it comes from within he says here's why it can't come from God because God's character is perfect God cannot be tempted he is perfect. There isn't anything in God's character that has any kind of sympathy, any kind of resonance, any kind of a draw, magnetic draw, to something external to his character that is, that is less than his perfect character that he has any inclination to follow. It can't be done. He's perfect in his holiness. And this perfect God will never tempt you. You may have a trial in your life. Remember, that trial is meant to grow you. But he doesn't bring The temptation. That temptation, he's going to tell us in a minute, is from within. Now, why is it important that we understand that temptation doesn't come from God? Let me suggest that if we conclude this temptation comes from God, and we know it's a temptation that has at least the potential to destroy us, that all of a sudden, my whole view of God is, God, what kind of a God are you? you know who I am, you know my own weaknesses, and you would bring something in that could destroy me and hurt me and hurt a lot of other people. And all of a sudden, my conclusions about God is this, God, I don't think you're good. And let me just say this, doubting God's goodness is the first step to entertaining temptation. And when we doubt his goodness, then we doubt his plan, and we check out of his gym, which is a gym to grow us and strengthen us, It's a gym to allow us to find joy though and grow to be like Christ. We check out of the program. I don't want that path. And all of a sudden we conclude that you know what? Look, this is from God. I I can't help it. In fact, when we think temptation comes from any other place, whether it's God or the devil or the world, we are left with this bad conclusion. I can't help it. There's nothing I can do about it. And we don't fight temptation. And James says, couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 7, he calls us to resist the devil and he will flee. And the scriptures, when it comes to what's God's role in temptation is clear. He's here to help us. So 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says this. There's no temptation that seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So there's two promises of God when it comes to temptation. That he won't let anything come in. So temptation's got to get God's permission. And it kind of comes to the gate of God. Is this too big for my fear? Or can he handle it? It's okay. He can handle it. All right. goes through that kind of like a weight scale. A pass of the weight scale. And then he promises, now you get in that room and there's temptation. I promise you, you will not be in a room that has no exits. I promise you, there'll be a flashing exit sign. You can get out. I promise you that. Then we read in Hebrews chapter 2 about Jesus, who himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So, Let's be clear, James says, when it comes to temptation, it's not from God's hand. It's from our own hearts. It comes from within our own evil desires. And yes, he's writing to Christians. And yes, he's talking to us. Those who are in Christ, we, we know our new creatures. The old things are passed away. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Behold, all things are new, but the reality is with new hearts, we still battle with the old nature. That's exactly what the scriptures say. There's a battle going on. The old nature is dethroned, but not yet destroyed, is how Packer puts it. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, verse 17. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Peter says in First Peter 2.11, these desires war against our souls. So maybe that helps you understand the inner turmoil that's going on. It's a battle. It's a battle of these desires for our heart's allegiance. And the way we go, the desires we allow to rule us will either bless us or they'll kill us. I was wondering this week, why didn't he say, after he says they don't come from God, why doesn't he say they come from the devil? Because certainly, that's where temptation came at the very first temptation, for Eve, for Adam, came through the serpent, devil himself. That's certainly how it came to Jesus when he was fasting and praying, getting ready for his stint of public ministry. The enemy came to him. Why doesn't it say the devil. Why doesn't it talk about the world? Because the Bible talks about the world the flesh and the devil. Why does he just talk about our own evil desires? Because here's why. Whether they come from the enemy, whether they come from the world, all those things external have to go through the gateway of our heart. And it's at that point where the evil desires will either swing the door wide open or our godly desires will slam it shut and say, not today. Not today. So here's what we need to be very clear about when we think about temptation. That temptation is not sin. Because this would really be bad thinking, bad theology if you said, man, <laughs> I've been tempted to do it. In God's eyes, it's like I did it, right? no. <laughs> Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without what? Without sin. He was 4:15. So temptation is not sin. Falling into temptation, following those evil desires, that's sin. And so what is it? What exactly is temptation? It's any th- desire that gets me to move to a place where I no longer love Christ. It's getting me to switch from his path to another path. From the path of life to the path of destruction. It's any desire that gets me to doubt that God is good. That gets me to to wonder if there's any chance this promise could come true. It gets me to disobey his clear command. That's temptation. And the progression here is crystal clear. Do you see it? Evil desires, boy, they're not neutral, they're powerful. They drag us off. It's like being kidnapped, and they entice us. But really, the metaphor here is hunting and luring something out that you might trap it or catch it. And these evil desires, when acted on, he says, are conceived. So he goes from conception to birth to death. Do you see it with, these, with this anatomy here of temptation? So when do the evil desires come to life? When are they conceived? When we act on them. And then what gives birth to the acting on of those evil desires is what the Bible calls a sin. And as sin grows up, and as it progresses, what it brings, the result of that in my life, is death. Spiritual death. Physical death. Separation from the God who is the source of life. So at the heart of the struggle is the human heart. And when we give in to these desires, James says, guess what? You've checked out of God's gym. You're no longer pers- persevering in faith. And, and so James is saying, you better expect in tough times that there's going to be temptation, temptation to check out on God, to check out of his path. Proverbs 7 gives this graphic illustration about sexual temptation. And he talks about the young fool who like an ox follows sensuality like an ox to slaughter. Or a bird who's caught in a snare, not realizing that it'll cost him his life. You see, because temptation's deceptive. It looks good. It makes great promises. But in the end, it leads to death. But I'm not sure we always believe that. I'm not sure we always believe that. And maybe that's because you know following the devil can can have its fun. And I seem to know a few people that are moving that direction and looks pretty good to me. And when we start thinking about that, you know what we start doing with sin is we start playing with sin. Like the children in this Dutch playground who came upon an artillery shell that somehow landed in their little neighborhood there. It still was live with explosives from World War II. And kids do what kids do. They play with anything, especially some new things and a cool heavy thing like this. And for two months... They're playing with it in their own playground until their parents finally find out and they tell the authorities and they safely set this thing off. And you know what? James is saying, don't play with sin. Don't play with it. It's destructive. It is destructive. And so just as the mountain lion is the predator of our bodies, James says, temptation is to our soul. The Bible says, don't play with sin, destroy it, put it to death, Colossians 3.5. And James would ask us this morning, Are you playing with any temptation right now? Are you playing with sin like a cat would play with a ball of string or a little mouse? Having a good time with it. Walter Wingren, in his book, "Ask for Me in My House, talks about the marriage relationship and the devastating effects of infidelity in marriage. And he talks about in an affair, there's always this moment of maybe. The moment of maybe is where you allow your evil desires to start to wonder about the possibilities of this relationship going somewhere. And the moment of maybe is, maybe they're having the same feelings about it as I am. I thought about that phrase, the moment of maybe. And I have a feeling the moment of maybe comes in all kinds of temptation. Did you think any of this this week? Maybe God's wrong. Maybe this is good for me. Maybe I should get a little closer and see for myself Maybe just once. Maybe maybe no one will even know. How we stare down temptation like a mountain lion is by following His last word here. Look at verses 16 through 19 because what He gives us here is building on this promise that we need to claim, the warning that we need to heed. And here he gives us this truth to remember. And the truth is this. Everything that's good, everything that's perfect, the deepest things that you long for in your life, they come from only one place, from God. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He says, don't let these evil desires lie to you. They're just like like the enemy who Jesus says he's he's a liar and and he's like a thief who comes to steal, to destroy, and to kill. And, And these evil desires will do the same thing. And yet they promise you life. They promise you joy. They promise you happiness. They promise you a shortcut that's downhill all the way, it's a whole lot easier than God's path, that's always uphill. And you look at it, you go, looks good, looks promising. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by those evil desires. They cannot deliver on their promise. They cannot be the good and perfect things that you long for, that can only come from God and a God who never changes. There's no variation in Him. And so here's how I put it. Maybe this illustration will help you. The enemy, our evil desires, they come and they offer us spam. So that's good stuff. I don't know if you ever had it, but I don't think I've ever had it. I got a can there, and I'm a little scared to try it. But it promises this is good stuff, and I'm sure some of you like it. It's really good stuff. And and God says, well, I got something. It's called a filet mignon. And and we got a choice. See, the problem for a lot of us is, though, that all we've ever eaten in our life is spam. It's okay. Is there something better? I wouldn't know. That's all I've ever had. I've only had spam. But James says, when you taste, when you receive the good and perfect gifts from God, the filet, you're not going to go back to the can when you've got a choice. Right now, we don't have a choice. I mean, times are tough. We're spending all our grocery money, uh, you know, uh, on gasoline right now. So spam's looking pretty cost-effective. But in the world of temptation, we've got to get it clear. The evil desires offer up a can. Jesus offers us up a filet. And he gives us two examples of the good gifts that God gives us. Two gifts that are instrumental in staring down this mountain lion called temptation. He talks about the spirit and the word of truth. Now, the spirit, nowhere do you see the spirit there, but it's implied in that phrase in verse 18. He chose to give us birth. And the giving us of spiritual birth, spiritual new life is through the spirit. It's the spirit that was with Christ in the wilderness. It's the spirit that rose him from the dead. It's the powerful spirit of Christ that lives in us that helps us know that's the way. Go there. Ooh, that's not good. It's the spirit that encourages us and strengthens us to be faithful, to persevere. It's the spirit that rebukes us and pricks our hearts to say, ah, don't go there. It's the spirit of Christ. It helps us stare down the enemy of temptation. And it is the word of truth. And the scriptures are clear that the word and the spirit are always working together. They're always working together. That's why the sword is called the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And Jesus took up that word. And when he was tempted three times, he went to, of all places, Deuteronomy, and he fought off Satan's temptation. And Craig Childs, he faces the mountain lion, he draws his dagger. And James says, Christ drew the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and you need to too. But how can we draw it? How can we draw from its strength, its truth, if we don't know it? We need to be in the Word, and the Word needs to be in us. And as we do, we will face temptation from a position of strength. So what James is telling us as we wrap it up is this. The trial is going to lead you to a fork in the road. The trial is going to take you to a point where you're going to have to make a choice. God, through His Spirit, says, this is the way it leads to life. The promise is you're going to grow like Christ. You're going to even find joy in the journey. But it's hard. It is uphill. But it leads to life. Life forever. And then there's this other path. It's the path that those evil desires and temptation woo us down to. Hey, this is a shortcut. It promises all kinds of things. But it's a way that leads to death. Downhill coasting all the way. How is it with you? Well, here's how it is with me. I find myself falling. And you think about falling flat on your face. That's a very vulnerable place for the jaws of a mountain lion, isn't it? And I find myself falling. And like Paul, doing the things I don't want to do. And James says, I want you to know. I want you to know that when you wrestle with the things that you want to stop but can't, Your victory is in Christ who lived a perfect life, who died for all the junk in your life and his spirit in your heart can make all the difference as you fight and when you find yourself flat on your feet again, he offers us a second chance as we confess our sin and find his cleansing forgiveness. James comes to us and says, look, it is powerful, but don't ever forget the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's got your back if he's got your heart. So give him your heart that he might be the one and the only one who can keep you from stumbling, who can present you blameless before the presence of Almighty God. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray that you would help those who today maybe for the first time realize there is no way in their own strength they're ever going to get to the other side of these things that are destroying their life. And I pray that you would help them to believe that your son not only lived a perfect life conquering sin and temptation, but that he died as a perfect sacrifice for all of us who couldn't live the life that you've called us to live. He died that we might live and find life in you. And we would pray for our brothers and sisters here, for our own hearts, that in the midst of trials, we'd remember the promise. And we would remember that everything good that we long for in this life and the next comes from your good and perfect hand. We pray it in Jesus' name, the greatest example of your greatest gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.